In recent weeks, the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic has swept through India at an alarming rate. And the situation in hospitals is critical. It's a tsunami, not a second wave. You have to refuse a lot of people every day. I'm just tired of saying no to everyone. But every hospital is full. As a doctor, an entrepreneur, and the founder and director of Ujala Cygnus Hospitals, Shuchan Bajaj is faced with incredibly difficult decisions on a daily basis. It's heartbreaking for everybody, but you need to see whether you want to save 10, 15 lives or just work very hard on one patient and use up all the oxygen you have and then maybe have a 40-50% chance of saving that person. I'm Darius Teeter, and this is Grid and Growth with Stanford Graduate School of Business, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs. In this special episode, Dr. Shuchan Bajaj shares his experiences from the front line of India's COVID-19 response. We hear inspiring stories of true grit from healthcare workers, how Shuchan's pioneering hospitals are helping India's underserved population in how volunteers in the government have collaborated to provide vital telemedicine services. So without further ado, here's Shu Chin. Hi, I'm Shu Chin Bajaj. I'm the founder director of Ujala Cygnus Group of Hospitals. We have 15 hospitals spread across four states of North India, catering to the most economically and access-challenged communities. So can you just describe for me your past 24 hours? They've been quite crazy, uh, as you may expect from someone who's living in Delhi and working in healthcare. So we have opened recently, just three days ago, a 1,000-bedded COVID care facility in partnership with the Delhi government, which is uh, completely free of cost to everyone coming in and has a all oxygen bed. So oxygen is a bit of a scramble for all Delhiites and people living around Delhi in Haryana and Uttar Pradesh right now. It's an extremely premium commodity. Hospitals keep running out of it as well. So the past 24 hours have been mainly uh, consisting of three, four things, I think. One is, of course, working in that 1,000-bed facility that has taken quite a lot of my time and my hydration. Working in PP kits really dries you out completely, especially in this hot weather and with a temporary structure for our hospital. So it's not really air-conditioned or anything Second, I've been attending a lot of phone calls, sometimes as many as 400 to 500 a day, just trying to solve problems of um, many people uh, related to hospital admissions, oxygen access. And third, of course, I've been scrambling to get oxygen for my hospitals. So most of my hospitals keep running out of oxygen and then we have to either scramble oxygen from one hospital to another or shift out patients from one hospital to another or some other hospital to make sure that, you know, ventilated patients and patients on BiPAP machines and high-flow oxygen don't suffer. So in the last 24 hours, two hospitals, Rivadi and Panipat, almost ran out of oxygen. So we had to shift some patients from here to there. So yeah, it's been almost say 10, 12 days I've had any sleep at all. So do I understand correctly? So you have 15 hospitals that you manage as part of the Cygnus Group. You opened up three days ago a thousand bed COVID hospital. So you're an entrepreneur, you're a business founder and manager, but you're also an attending physician. Is that right? Are you walking around in PPEs during the day? 
Yeah, so I am the backup physician for my hospitals anyways, but since we opened this new one, of course, it has very low uh, human resources right now, uh, sourcing human resources even for current hospitals which have established payrolls and established consultants on role is difficult. Getting new ones for a new hospital is even more difficult. So I do ICU duties as backup for my hospitals as well. When our physicians fall sick, they're, they're not able to attend you to any reasons because we run a very economically lean operation, as I said. So uh, when somebody falls sick, I cover up for them. But for this new one, of course, I've been doing my clinical work as well. So it's good to brush up on clinical skills all the time. And I strongly feel that if you don't work with patients, uh, you see everything through the 30,000 feet level uh, at a hospital of this scale before. Most of our hospitals are about 100 beds each. So this is 10 times that in one single setting. And it's in a temporary structure. So everything is new about it. So if we don't work very closely with the patients we are supposed to care for there there will be many things that we will miss and we will not be able to find out what processes are working what are not so it's a good learning experience as well i remember speaking to you last year and when the lockdown first hit and you mentioned that your hospitals were essentially brought to a standstill because nobody wanted to come in for elective surgery did you imagine then that you would be facing a second wave that looked anything like this one? I don't think anybody could have imagined that. I was sure that a second wave would hit. I was speaking to everyone because the last century we had seen that the Spanish flu second wave was much wider and much deadlier. Even this uh, century, we saw the second wave coming in into Europe, then the UK, then US, then even in our country in Kerala, then Maharashtra, Mumbai faced the brunt of it. So we did see the second wave coming in, but the worst of expectations were that it would be double of what the first wave was. We didn't even in our uh, worst nightmares think that it would be four times and the lethal part of it would be so much higher. The patients needing oxygen and ICU beds would be so much higher because last year, as you said, we were expecting a lot of cases, but the hospitals were quite forlorn for a long time because there was no electives, no OPDs. The expected rush of COVID patients didn't come in as late as July or August. So we were expecting it since March. We put the lockdown on 25th March in India, a very hard lockdown lasted for 68 days but once the lockdown opened and then the cases started to coming in into the hospital this year i think the difference has been that there has been no lockdown at all and uh, a part of the blame goes to us as physicians as well because of the entire narrative that we built around the disease last year that you know the youngsters are immune to it and they won't get any serious disease it's the old people who will get into icu you will get a minor disease a mild disease the only thing is that you can spread it to the elders but you won't get sick yourself which has uh, very sadly been proven to be very wrong so we are losing a lot of youngsters now a lot of youngsters are getting into ICU. That narrative is not unique to India. We were all telling ourselves it looks like somehow Africa has dodged this pandemic and it must be because the demographic pyramid is so flat and so wide with so many young people. Maybe that's the case in India. But even in the U.S., we were telling ourselves this. So what has changed that makes this more lethal for younger people? 
I think a mix of a lot of factors. One, of course, is the new strain. So we are seeing in North India, the UK variant is uh, almost in 60% of the cases. India itself has had the double mutant and now the triple mutant variants, the Bengal variant is here. So a lot of new strains, unfortunately, we have not been tracking the new strains uh, as as sincerely and as diligently as we should have been. Also, the fact that as we discussed this narrative that we built around that the youngsters would be safe. So the youngsters did go out, not just for work, but there were so many parties and gatherings and election rallies and religious congregations. And everybody was, you know, just uh, uh, having a ball because we, I think, prematurely congratulated ourselves as well that we had defeated the virus and India had, you know, this innate immunity and because of the demographics as well. And uh, third, I think the vaccination drive didn't really take off as it should have. Although we are the largest vaccine producers in the world, but the speed that we should have had, I think, didn't really catch up initially because uh, there was so much vaccine hesitancy. The communication maybe wasn't good enough. And now when the hesitancy has been overcome, when everybody now realizes that the vaccine is needed, the supply chains are not strong enough to ensure that each and everyone who wants the vaccine gets it for now. What was the origin of the vaccine hesitancy? I mean, obviously in the United States, there's this very, very powerful misinformation campaign across social media, you know, where one person's voice can be amplified a million times. Did some of that happen in India as well? Distrust around specific vaccinations or just a sense that if you're young, you don't need it? I think everything that's happened in the US happened here. We have a very strong network of WhatsApp forwards that the more sensational they are, uh, the faster they spread. So a lot of uh, misinformation about how vaccines were causing infertility, how vaccines were causing impotence, how vaccines were uh, a strategy by the big companies in the US to make sure that they had hegemony over the entire world due to some DNA being injected into the humans. So there was a lot of misinformation campaigns. We tried our best to counter them. I personally did a lot of campaigns on radio and internet uh, to overcome uh, vaccine hesitancy. But I think it was all a mix. Uh, the elderly were scared that they were too sick to tolerate an injection. They would fall sick. The youngsters were too overconfident that we don't really need the vaccine because, you know, we'll anyways, even if we get an infection, it will be like the common cold. It will be a very mild infection and the vaccines are anyway not promising any uh, security against getting a mild infection. The vaccine communication was always that it will protect you against being really serious, but you can still get infected post-vaccination. And the youngsters were thinking that anyways, you know, we'll, we won't get serious anyway, so what's the use? So a lot of misinformation campaigns were there. A lot of narrative was uh, skewed towards the anti-vaccine lobby. But I think uh, it has been overcome now to a great extent. I'd actually like our listeners to learn a bit more about you. So can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, your journey to becoming a doctor, and then at what point that became an entrepreneurial journey? 
I come from a very economically challenged family myself. My parents were refugees into India, so they came in uh, without anything. Uh, my father used to live with 16 of his uh, siblings and relatives in one horse stable. And then when he decided that you know the only way out of poverty was studying, he uh, built himself a tin shed on the roof of the horse stable, which he used to climb up using a rope every day, and used to study there. and then he got into uh, the delhi university there he became a professor he taught us that the only way out of poverty was education so we had to all study by force so that is how i became a doctor thankfully due to the indian education system i got through all my studies practically for free my annual fees was i think in medical school less than 5 dollars a year so it was all subsidized by the government And tell me the uh, the origin story of Ujjala Cygnus Hospitals. I mean, what was the problem you were trying to solve? When I was in Delhi, I used to get a lot of these calls saying that you know somebody's sick. We are bringing him to Delhi. Can you reserve a bed for us in your hospital? Can you help us? So, being the only doctor in the family, it felt very nice that you know I could help these people. I I could solve their problems. but on the other hand it was always very troubling that you know why did these people have to travel 4 to 5 hours to reach me at the risk of losing their lives because ambulances were not easily available so they're calling you with an emergency and their only option is to drive 3 or 4 hours to get to a decent hospital and with a bed yeah that would happen very regularly so and cell phones were not very common at that time they were existing but not everyone had them so i would sometimes wait for them the whole night i wouldn't hear anything from them i would keep waiting that they would turn up and the next day i would call their house saying that you know what happened you didn't come and i would they would say that oh we were bringing the patient in but then he died on the way so we just turned back and came back home so i would then go and attend their funerals so i would hear stories like you know this one died but it's okay the last one didn't he actually did make it to your hospital he stayed there for 14 15 days and he sold his house he sold his fields to pay for the medical treatment and then he died so look at his widow she's sitting there she's begging on the street so maybe it's a good thing that this one died on the way and didn't make it because you know at least his widow has a house to live in now so all these stories i would hear and it would be very disturbing you know that there is this big problem and why are we not able to solve it i think this was one of the biggest design thinking exercises that i did uh, sitting in uh, those communities and talking to them because i would otherwise be thinking of how best to get them into my hospital right so my my entire focus would have been on better ambulances better roads lesser traffic but then i realized pulling them into my hospital didn't really work because even those who came were not really served exactly to what they needed it was not like even if they were saved it was so expensive in these big private hospitals in delhi that that was even a bigger death if he did survive i had seen that uh, how people struggle to start from scratch Uh, i had seen it my family also so the whole focus shifted from how best to get them into hospitals in delhi to how we could go out and serve these people without you know completely breaking them economically so this is how the project started on how to best get good quality healthcare which is not expensive 
as near to the community as possible without you know asking them to travel four five hours and asking them to sell their houses or lands because in india 60 million people slip below the poverty line every year just due to healthcare costs out of pocket expense on healthcare is massive there's not much of uh, government or private coverage for healthcare there's a wide range of public health facilities in India from the best to the worst. So unfortunately, in small towns that we work in, the public health facilities are not something that you want to go to, especially in an emergency because they don't have uh, cardiology, neurosurgery, intensive care. So the problem statement is how do I get good quality, urgent care, emergency care in tier two and tier three towns? to save more lives, and it needs to be affordable. How do you make that work? How do you pay the bills? So we do a lot of things on that. The first thing is that we have very lean setting up costs, so it ensures return on capital very, very easily. And we use a lot of our knowledge as medical practitioners ourselves to see which things make a difference to the patient outcome, which things are just needed for luxury and which things are just needed to make doctors happy. Second, we don't own any land or assets. So it's all rental model. So we just rent out all the buildings and everything. So we don't spend any money on unnecessary acquisition of land or construction. Third, we work on a, a model of volumes of scale. So we usually hire all our doctors on fixed salaries. So there's no pay per use kind of a model. So it's not like uh, the doctor is getting a share of each and every patient, which is usually the model everywhere. And so if we get the required number of patients, uh, we don't need to spend a lot on the doctors as well because they are getting a fixed salary so that ensures two things one is if we get a lot of patients the per patient cost for the doctor goes down a lot second since the doctor is on a fixed salary they are not incentivized to unnecessarily you know do procedures or do unnecessary interventions on the patient so these are the some of the things that we use to make sure that our hospitals are at, set up at very low cost it's interesting. You sound much more like an entrepreneur than a doctor. I remember you told me last year, for years you had considered expanding into telemedicine, but you thought, well, we'll get to it eventually, we'll get to it eventually, we'll get to it eventually, and then you had to get to it in two weeks after the lockdown in March of 2020. How has that grown? Is telemedicine a big part of your strategy to reach rural communities to expand your your services beyond brick and mortar? Digital health is one of the integrated parts uh, of our uh, community, of our work ever since the first wave last year. More, so much so, in fact, that we've uh, named the company now instead of Ujala Cygnus Hospitals, it's called Ujala Cygnus Healthcare Services. So it's not just hospitals. So we started out with the thought that we are a group of hospitals uh, who will also provide digital health services but in the next few years we want to be known as uh, a healthcare services provider who also runs a group of hospitals so this is what our thinking has changed into so that's a dramatic change how many patients are you reaching with digital health services compared to brick and mortar hospital care 
we have had a huge beginning in the tele consultation services last year and the during the lockdown so during the lockdown we had we were doing almost 35000 tele consults a month we usually do almost the same number uh, as physical consults as well so we are hoping we'll differentiate us from the other service providers that have only either brick and mortar or only digital health services so this is something that we built as a new product entirely and this is something that we are uh, coming out with uh, to offer to all of our uh, partner organizations as well as uh, newer organizations that uh, we are partnering with now describe for me you said 15 hospitals there in tier 2 and tier 3 towns about 100 beds per hospital before you created this new emergency 1000 bed ward What has been the impact of this second wave of the pandemic on your existing hospitals infrastructure? Are patients coming to you with COVID-related illnesses? Did you have to completely change the the way the hospitals run? Yeah, we've been completely overwhelmed, I think, and that is an understatement. Uh this year uh, we don't have time to do any elective surgeries or elective even our operation theaters now are full of covid patients so our covid patients are lying on the operation theater table because that is one place where oxygen supply is assured so it's been a struggle it's depressing and frustrating to just keep saying no to people a lot of friends call up for beds you know can you arrange one bed for us anywhere we are ready to go anywhere 200 kilometers 400 kilometers we are ready to travel you have so many hospitals but it's really depressing you have to refuse a lot of people every day i'm just tired of saying no to everyone but every hospital is full are you also turning people away i mean are you having to turn people away at the front doors of these hospitals i mean in addition to the people who know you friends of friends relatives it's a tsunami not a second wave so the people are lining up outside hospitals there's a row of ambulances standing outside hospitals waiting to get in people have been in ambulances for 8 hours 10 hours at a stretch not getting a hospital bed so we have had to turn many patients away from outside the hospital from the casualty emergency room all hospitals are full it's not just the beds that is a problem it's everything so most of the staff is falling down sick so they are in no condition to work they are taking offs for let's say 7 days 8 days they are they are off duty so we are short of doctors short of nurses and then of course the biggest thing that in north india right now is availability of oxygen so some hospitals are actually working well below capacity because we have no oxygen in the hospital so it's not like last year when you know you were diagnosed with covid and you suddenly started running to hospital now the community understands that below 92 you don't really need to look for a hospital bed so they're all managing at home so everyone coming into hospital right now is having low oxygen and that is what they are coming for so all the oxygen all the beds in the hospital are oxygen beds now and due to lack of oxygen we are unable to admit a lot of patients even though we may have vacant beds at that time so these are some things that we are really struggling for this year How many people are working for you Shuchin across these hospitals? We have about 400 people working in the 1000 bed setup right now and besides that in the company we have about 1800 people working regularly as well. And 
they're all risking their lives right now during this pandemic. How do you keep them motivated? Have you had a lot of turnover? You're, what's your role as a leader in trying to keep this all hanging together? So I'm very proud of the team we have. None of them, not even a single one has left their post. Even if they've fallen sick, they've come back at the first opportunity to come back and work. Many of them have actually lost very close family members and they've just gone for one day for the rituals and come back to work again the next day. Many of them have been caring for their close family members within the hospital itself. So they've been working 24 by 7. They've not left their duties at all, saying that my father is there, so I might as well stay with him. If I'm staying with him, I might as well work for other patients also, you know. what? So they've been very powerful. They've been very inspiring. The scare was much more, I think, last year. We had stories like if people wanted to come to work from their villages, the villagers had broken their vehicles. They had threatened to harm them also. They had threatened them. If, they, if you are going to hospital, you cannot come back to the village at all. You just stay there. They had broken the roads of the villages to prevent people from coming out and going in. So even then, they had risked their lives walking through fields to come back to work with us. There was a strong culture and commitment to the mission. It also, the fact that you were both an entrepreneur managing this network of hospitals, but also putting on your PPE and, and going to work every day must have been inspiring. Yeah, I think the main thing is that they look to us for an example, right? So I need to uh, make sure that uh, I am there on the front lines as well. I am not just talking and saying that you need to do it, right? Uh, when we set up the thousand bed hospital, I was there. I admitted the first patient myself. So they do look it up as an example that, you know, if this guy is standing there, it must be safe, right? If this guy is standing himself and seeing all the patients and wearing the same kit as we've got, right? Even in vaccination, when vaccine hesitancy was there, the entire top management team, I think we were the first ones to go and say that, okay, now we are also getting vaccinated. So come and you should all get vaccinated yourself as well. Leading by example, I think is an important part We've seen it all across India that the medical fraternity has been, every hospital has had, you know, overwhelming flows, overflowing patients, but every hospital has been open at all times. And then I work a lot with a voluntary organization called Project Step One. So we work with 18 now state governments on their COVID response ranging in from COVID helplines to bed management to home isolation management to plasma banks. So Project Step 1 sounds interesting. It's a cloud-based platform for volunteers to help something. Can you say a bit more? Yeah, so it started as a small WhatsApp group last year in March itself. So we thought that, you know, this COVID pandemic is coming and from what we are hearing, it will overwhelm everything. It will overwhelm the existing infrastructure. So the governments will need some help. Now we have 7,000 doctors volunteering on the platform and 3,000 other volunteers, paramedics, nurses, medical students, techies. We do a lot of teleconsultations. We do almost 70,000 calls a day now. Earlier, the doubts were whether I have COVID or not. So how to differentiate between a common cold and a COVID. And if you needed a COVID test or not, that was how it started out. Then when COVID really increased in, uh, so we started doing COVID positive triaging. Even now we're working with the vaccination drive a lot as well. We are working with Facebook 
to increase awareness about vaccination we built whatsapp chatbots to answer any questions on vaccination so a lot of these things are still happening in addition to work as a promoter and doctor in the jala sickness i'm astounded at what you're doing simultaneously i actually can't get my head around it you've apart from managing your hospital network setting up a thousand bed COVID treatment facility, and then a second one, and managing this nonprofit project step one, which actually sounds fascinating. It sounds like crowdsourced telemedicine plus triage for positive tests, plus public information campaigning and advocacy, all run by volunteers. It's actually amazing. I mean, I've actually never heard of anything like it. And you're doing that at night when you're not in PPE being an attending physician when you're not managing your business. Yeah, it's, Who are it's you? one of the... <laughs> how many, actually, I should say, how many of you are there? I think this is what happens when you enjoy everything you do. So Project Step 1 is, I think, one of the most fascinating things that uh, you can ever come across. So it has no office. It has no building again. So not even, you know, we don't need to even pay rentals now. So it's all good. Everybody works from their home on their own phones. 99.9% .9 of the team have never met each other. There's no name of Project Step 1 anywhere. Nobody recognizes it. So I think it's, it's wonderful. I read an article, an interview with you, and you quoted uh, Lenin saying, Lenin famously said once that there's decades when nothing happens, and then there's days in which decades happen. Is that what's happening right now? Oh, absolutely. Beyond a doubt. I think these are days in which centuries have happened instead of decades. It's like life changing for everyone. I'm sure none of us will forget what has happened in these past few months and we'll be those irritating grandfathers who tell their grandchildren these stories all the time. Uh, but yeah, these are days which have changed uh, everything in our lives. They've turned everything topsy-turvy. There's going to be a lot of learnings from this, hopefully, a lot of positive things, hopefully. We'll try and make sure that we don't harm the planet as much as we've been doing over the past few centuries. I think there's a lot of spirituality also coming into people. Hopefully, this will last much beyond the second wave, but people will not go back to their routine lives when this wave finishes. I hope that is the silver lining that this wave will bring to us. Uh, it's a very powerful sentiment. I share it. I share it. So I want to know what has surprised you most about how the pandemic has unfolded, both as a doctor, but also as an entrepreneur. I think the sheer speed and scale uh, did surprise me. Although we were expecting it to come, we were advocating with the government, with the public policy experts that this will definitely come. Do not declare victory, but the scale at which it came... Second, I think uh, what was not surprising in the rear view mirror, see everything is clear, but the fact that we did not anticipate many supply chain issues in the first wave and then again in the second wave. So in the first wave, as I said, it was PPE kits, masks. In the second wave, it has been oxygen, medicines. Everything is short. Uh, in the third wave, it may be doctors and nurses for, you know, all you can say. You'll, you'll just sort out every physical thing in the supply chain every material thing and then in the third wave you just may realize that doctors and nurses are not up to it they will say we've had enough we are just calling sick we are not coming in anymore because you know you can't expect us to come in every time and do this so that may be the case there may be 
a lot of mental health issues in in medical practitioners in addition to physical health i'm curious you know a lot of this the vaccination issues supply chain disruptions being addressed through just painful experience how do you think the public health policy landscape will change in india it's such a vast uh, and varied country you have a a rural urban divide you have income divides you have so many different cultures and castes and religions what is your takeaway in terms of public health policy public health spending public health mandates what changes do you see coming so unfortunately india has never seen an election in which healthcare is an issue right there have been no votes cast based on healthcare manifestos policies or promises indian elections are mostly focused around various other issues i hope that another silver lining behind this pandemic would be that healthcare would be in focus people will start asking questions what happened why did india become this country where public healthcare is not at all something that the government thinks of sushin um our audience for this podcast are people in emerging markets especially south asia and and africa and i'm curious what advice do you have for our audience for leaders who live in countries where the second wave maybe hasn't hit yet in countries that for all intents and purposes they've gone back to the normal rhythm of life what advice do you have for the medical establishment and the health policy leaders in those countries i think we need to learn from uh, each other so as we saw that the second wave does come in it's much bigger it's much more widespread and it's much deadlier we've seen that in last century we've seen that now in europe uk us now india so i think everyone needs to be prepared for it we should hope for the best but be prepared for the worst it's too early to declare a victory over this pandemic even if we are vaccinated even if we have put all systems in place i think not just for the second wave in africa and parts of south asia even the third wave i think we should be prepared enough we should secure our supply lines we should make sure that everyone is ready with uh, a lot of manpower and equipment the issue of the extreme lockdown in march of last year I think a lot of emerging markets looked at that and asked themselves could our country survive a lockdown like that when such a large percentage of the population are working in the informal sector so if you don't work one day you actually don't eat that day so in a big tsunami type wave of infections in in one of these other economies or a third wave in India is that kind of a lockdown even really a realistic option I agree with you uh, it's not an option at all for economies like us we may be sitting in our homes and saying that you know work from home and everybody should stay at home but a person who goes and works in a factory or works at a construction site they have no option to work from home and and once you shut these down of course it is very difficult for them to earn their living to even have a morsel to it and the longer you stretch it out for the more chances there are of completely tearing up the fabric of the society as you said so i think the easiest option is now to vaccinate everyone so each and every government needs to understand that the cost of the lockdown is like hundreds and thousands of times more than these vaccine costs 
I think a lot of our listeners around the world will hear your story and they'll want to know, well, what could I do or what could my company do to help with your efforts and that, those of the others in Project Step 1? We are welcoming all kinds of help. Uh, we can use any help that we get. So for Project Step 1, of course, uh, the help that we need is more people volunteering. Since it's a remote volunteering, you can volunteer from any part of the world. You just need a phone to volunteer and a data connection. We have volunteers from a lot of countries. We actually have dedicated WhatsApp groups for US and Australia and UK uh, volunteers. So yeah, we have a website where people can just log on and fill a short form to volunteer and we'll be happy to onboard them. We also have a similar volunteer call for uh, Ujala Cygnus because we have a lot of needs of back-end technology, softwares, how to streamline the processes. So there's a volunteer form on Ujala Cygnus website as well. You can just log on and fill the form and we'll be happy to onboard you and see how much you can contribute from around the world. We need a lot many more things than just uh, volunteering for remotely. But that is an important part, but we do need doctors and nurses to come forward and work with us not just voluntarily we are willing any person who wants to come and work with us on a salary very happy to onboard you we need as many people as possible especially nurses so a lot of help is required and any help even the smallest of help is welcome we'll gladly accept it and gladly you know we'll recognize you and honor you as well to learn more about project step one and how you can help you can visit projectstep1.org. And if you want to support Shuchin in his efforts at Hujala Cygnus, we'll share some links with you in the show notes. With the crisis in Indian hospitals continuing, doctors like Shuchin are being faced with some of the toughest decisions of their careers. I think the worst ones have been um, refusing beds, turning away patients to very sick patients who really needed ventilators and ICUs. But we didn't have anything available. Even if we had, we had no oxygen available. So turning away a patient when you have a bed available, but you have rationed oxygen use and you feel that, you know, this according to the triage, this patient will be using up a lot of our oxygen supplies without any expected good outcomes. That is, I think, one of the worst decisions anyone can make. It's it's heartbreaking for everybody. But you need to see whether you want to save 10, 15 lives or just work very hard on one patient and use up all the oxygen you have and then maybe have a 40, 50% chance of saving that person. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I can't even imagine it. I, I want to thank you for sharing something so difficult and painful. How are you preventing your own burnout? What keeps you going? Uh, I don't know. I think I'll need at least a couple of psychiatrists for the next 10 years. <laughs> it's it's very tough. But yeah, you get used to it, I think. Just keep working. Uh, you don't get time to think. This is, I think, uh, the most relaxed couple of hours I have had in the last month. So then you start thinking of a lot of things. But when you're in the heat of the battle, I don't think you get time to reflect or time to think. It's just making automaton decisions that, you know, need to do this, need to do this, need to get into triage, need to get this patient done, need to get oxygen into that hospital. So you don't get time to think at all. That brings us to the end of today's special episode. I want to thank Dr. Shushan Bajaj for taking the time to speak with us during this critical moment in India. 
His dedication to his work is truly inspiring. From running Ujala Cygnus Healthcare Services and doing night shifts with Project Step One, to putting on a PPE kit and treating patients. There are no lives untouched by the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we globally endure this crisis together, the voices of doctors and scientists on the front lines have never been more important. This has been a masterclass from Grit and Growth with Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you want to find out more about how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs throughout Africa and South Asia through Stanford Seed, visit seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to hit follow and share it with your friends. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed from Stanford Graduate School of Business. Lori Fuller researched and developed content for this episode with additional research by Jeff Prickett. David Rosenzweig is our production coordinator and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves. With writing and production from Isabel Pollard and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. We'll be back next week with an episode on managing a family business and succession planning. Don't miss it. <laughs>